0: Titus chapter 2, we're going to think about verses 9 and 10. It's on page 1198 in the Church Bibles. Um, There's a very famous magazine called Time Magazine in America, and they ran an essay on the whole subject of work ethics. Uh, In that essay, they claim that absenteeism has doubled in 10 years. And almost 20% of people are unhappy in their jobs. And the workforce, the general labour market, is anti-authoritarian, too educated, and has too too high expectations. For example, they said, unemployment is very high, but there are not enough taxi drivers, plumbers or cleaners. What is really interesting about this essay is that it was written in 1972, over 40 years ago. Is it better than that now, or worse? 1972? Well, this week, knowing that we're going to be thinking about the whole issue of work based on these verses, we'll come to Titus in a moment. One of the questions that's been on my mind as I've been thinking about this, I don't know where this question came from, but um, maybe we should have a straw poll. I'm thinking about the whole question of ethics. And my my question, I suppose, for you would be, do you you think, like many people think, that the the work ethic of younger people in this generation is somehow worse or of a lower standard than the work ethic of, say, their grandparents in the past? That's a good question, isn't it? Should we have a straw poll? Maybe, maybe there'd be a divide between the older ones and the younger ones, who you knows? Maybe I'll ask you to put your hands up. But do, do you think that the people's work ethic has been in decline? I can see a few nods. I can see a few nods from the younger ones as well, so that's interesting. You you can hear a lot, you know, sometimes we sit on TV, don't you, older people, it's not like it used to be in my day. My dad worked 37 hours down the pit. And and we've got this idea that somehow uh, younger people don't have those kind of attitudes. Uh, One older person said, the younger people I work with now seem to want as much as they can get, as fast as they can get it, for as little work as they can possibly do. That's that's a statement from an older employee, if you like, on their younger colleagues. I don't know if they said that to their face. (laughs) That wouldn't lead to good industrial relations, would it? There was a time, uh, I think, when it was generally considered in society that it was a good thing to work just in and of itself. Work was considered to be a good thing. In other words, people generally felt work is good. There was a dignity attached to someone being able to go out, do their work, earn some money, and, and look after you know, their lives. If, if a man, of family, uh, or, 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 the, or the wife, work itself was a good thing. We, we have something, uh, I suppose, in the West that, that, that has become known as the Protestant work ethic. And uh, men like John Calvin in the past taught that work was part of your worship of God. And that success in your job was a sign of God's blessing on your life. I'm a Protestant work ethic. I don't know if we, we, we know what that even means now. I, I don't, I'm not sure if it's as simple as that. And I do, these are just a few rambling thoughts. Um, because I, I, I think it is very true that in the last even 50 years, maybe even less than that, the world of work is changing so rapidly that it's not easy to see what is happening to work ethic because the the ground rules are changing so quickly. And I I think this is something that it's good for us to think about before we just get into the Bible. Let me um, just give you a few things. I think compared to our grandparents... There's a real lack of job security. Would you agree with that? Um, Small companies can be fragile, but even large companies these days seem to go through cycles of making shed loads of people redundant, and then they go on a massive recruitment drive, and then they make a whole load of people redundant, and then they go on a recruitment drive. Often employees have a sense, whether they work in a small company or a big company, of just being a number Or some kind of insignificant part of a huge machine that we don't really understand. So the whole idea of job security, I I know people who have been made redundant several times. And that wasn't so much the case perhaps for our grandparents. I think um, one one of the issues there is that we we have a much more fluid job market, don't we? Uh, My dad worked for the same company from the week I was born until he retired over 30 odd years working for the same company. He did a few different jobs within that company, but he worked for the same company for almost the whole of his working life. How many people do you know now who would work their whole life for the same company? It, it doesn't happen in the same way as it did for our grandparents, perhaps, or, or even our parents. Kids are being trained uh, in school for jobs that haven't even been invented yet um, the, the, the whole kind of uh, status uh, of, of the job market is changing I, I've just realised Jai's not here and I was going to show you a little video at this point I'll have to pass on that maybe I'll show you that sometime later um, the, my, my third point was really about technology um, the video that I was going to show you was one that I got showed as a parent in our kids' school. So some of the kids will have seen it. Uh, some, sometimes people call this video, Shift Happens. Um, and the, the idea of, t- of technological change. Um, the world is changing so quickly and some of that is down to technology. In one way, I suppose technology automates things, so as a result of that, uh, people maybe lose their jobs. But in other ways, technology creates all kinds of new opportunities. And, but the real issue is the speed of change, isn't it? In the last 20 years, 30 years, even 10 years. One of, one of the things that it said in the video was that it, it talks in the video about the time it takes to reach a global audience of, say, 50 million people. And for the medium of radio to reach a global audience of 50 million people, I think in the video it said something like 38 years, for the medium of Facebook to reach a global audience of 58, of 50 million, took less than two. What, what, is Facebook worth something like 60 billion dollars? Seven years ago it didn't even exist. The pace of change due to technology is just phenomenal absolutely phenomenal. But I think this affects kind of younger people and this relates to work ethics. The advent of computers and automation means that I'm I'm not sure if some younger people want to work less. I, I, I think what technology perhaps does is it inspires people to be trying to work smarter. And I think the mindset of a younger person is not necessarily... Uh, a kind of worse work ethic but a a different work ethic I think younger people ask why a lot more than their grandparents did I know my kids ask me why a lot more than well I think my grandparents asked their uh, parents why, why I don't think that is necessarily because they're being anti-authoritarian they generally want to know why so that they can do things better so there's kind of a flip side to that whole idea of technology. Oh, also, just, just the last point here, changing attitudes. In 1972, when that Time magazine article was written, the idea was, I think even then still, that you worked hard, bought stuff, like houses and cars, you raised a family, that was how you gained status. In America, people called it the American dream. That was what life was all about. I'm not sure if some of you younger ones will maybe correct me afterwards if this is not right, but I think younger people now are less concerned about materialism and more interested in leisure. It is not what you own now that defines you, but the experiences that you can enjoy. Perhaps people used to work because work was good. But now maybe work is just what you need to do to buy an exciting life rather than a materialistic one. I don't know, I'm just rambling and throwing out thoughts that have, that have provoked me this week. I think another aspect to changing attitudes, this is very true in work and I noticed this in business, I, th- I think people have a huge thirst to feel a sense of fulfilment. Maybe much more than previous generations did. So, these statements would be true for employees that, that I've known in my business. I want to feel as an employee that I have the freedom to do my job without someone breathing down my neck. You recognise that? I want to feel fully involved and understand how what I do impacts on the big picture. So, give me information. I want to be responsible for my own destiny and not just told what to do. I want to feel a sense of accomplishment and a sense of impact that what I'm doing is worth something. All of those things, I think people crave that sense of fulfilment. They're hungry and thirsty to feel impact and significance and involvement, participation and freedom. And uh, employers have to think very carefully about that because to to maintain morale in in that kind of culture needs great skill. I think, maybe as well, just in changing attitudes, is, is it not the case that there's a huge cynicism in our culture? People don't trust anyone who's in authority. Must be in it for himself. I'm not going to do what they say because they're only doing it because they've got a vested interest. They don't really care about me. This people don't believe in anything anymore. There's no sense of there's no unifying sense of why are we doing what we're doing. Um, I was reading one story about some guys. I I forget the name of the company now in America, but in the '60s. You know, the, this this company was part of the space program. They were building things that contributed to the Apollo missions, um, and um, the the staff would you know they would get up, they'd go into work. They were all the, the sense of purpose and unity and excitement that they were part of something. And as soon as the lunar mission landed on the moon, after that, the company just went downhill. Why? Because the employees, there was nothing for them to believe in. I think many people in our culture feel no one else cares about anything. So why should I? Why should I be bothered? No one else is. Even my boss doesn't care. (laughs) Sometimes we can feel that, can't we? There's a cynicism. And all, all of these things are in the mix, aren't they? As we think about changing attitudes at work... All of these changing attitudes are in the mix. We, we live in a world that is confusing and rapidly changing. So going back to our original question, are work ethics changing? Are people today having a less of a work ethic than people in the past? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure. I, I think that for younger people who live in such a crazy and such a rapidly changing world, maybe what younger people are looking for is something that they can believe in. And actually, if that could be unlocked, maybe those work ethics are there underneath some of these traits that we've been thinking about. Well, there, there's a few things to think about. When we get back to Titus here, I'm, I'm just rambling a few thoughts there before we get to Titus. Going back 40 years to 1972 is long enough time, isn't it? But going back 2,000 years is even more interesting. And Paul here is writing Titus, writing to tell Titus, as we've seen, to teach Christian believers to live in a way that matches their faith. The reason that Paul writes this to Titus 2,000 years ago is because when a culture departs from what we might call in a biblical way, godliness, all kinds of breakdowns occur. Family breakdowns as we've seen. Maybe work ethics breakdown. Last year, in the UK, absenteeism is estimated to have cost the UK economy £12 billion. That is to say that 40 million working days were lost last year. Through people not being at work. Throwing sickies, as we say, at work. Actually, those figures were an improvement on previous years because we were in a recession and people are more afraid to take the mickey in a recession than they are when it's not a recession. £12 billion. Imagine what you could do with that. While Paul here turns to the world of work in a culture that is been morally falling apart and uh, he addresses the issue of work now the question I said we'd get back to is how does this relate to slavery Um, we just need to justify this connection Um, some people do think that work is a kind of slavery maybe for some people it is that Um, let, let me just say a few things, we touched on this when we looked at 1 Peter last year, Paul is not condoning slavery here, you understand that The Bible is not a political handbook. Um, What he is doing is writing into what were cultural norms and encouraging people to have a right attitude within those cultural norms. He's not seeking to subvert those cultural norms. In time, the issue of slavery would change. But Paul is far more concerned with what our attitude should be in relation to those cultural norms. I think it's important also to point out here, I don't want you to think, when Paul mentions slavery here, don't think of William Wilberforce and, uh, and, and all that kind of stuff in our more recent history. This culture in the first century is not really a parallel of that. Let me give you uh, some, some stats here. When the New Testament is being written, there were in the Roman Empire 60 million slaves. Uh, Many of these slaves were far more than menial labourers. Doctors, teachers, musicians, actors, secretaries, stewards, all worked as slaves. It's true in the Roman culture that slaves were regularly better off than their free counterparts if they worked for a good master. They would actually prefer to be slaves than free. And the truth is, if you went out in the street you wouldn't be able to tell by looking who was a slave and who was a free person. It wouldn't be the case that all slaves would look like scruffy urchins. um, And and it just wasn't that kind of culture. The whole concept of slavery was a a whole economic system was built on on the idea of slavery. And as we said in time, that would change. But Paul is concerned here not so much to condone or to criticise those kind of cultural norms, but to speak into them about what our attitudes should be. So for those slaves who were Christian believers, Paul is urging them here to work in a way that reflects their faith in Christ and not to work in a way that just reflects cultural attitudes. And given what we've said about our own culture, the point is that Christian believers do believe in something. Something. Or rather someone. Christians do believe that life is significant. And purposeful. And that human beings are unique. And valuable. Christians do have a sense of accountability. Not just to a boss or a master. Who may not be watching. But actually to the Lord. Who they really serve. And this whole section is really evangelistic, isn't it? How can the world know that God is real and has impacted our lives if our work is futile and shoddy and lazy? I think it's really radical too. But I don't know, some of you work, some of you don't work. We're dealing with the issue of work. I think this is radical because if these instructions here that Paul gives hold truth for slaves... They can't be less true for someone who's working in employment in a free country like ours, can they? If Paul's telling slaves to have these attitudes, the standard can't be lower for you and me as we work. Do you get that point? This is radical stuff. Paul says, slaves, live like this. How can it be less so for an employee working in whatever kind of country you say, well, you don't know my boss? You don't know the company I work for. It's lousy. They're all stupid. And they tell me to do stupid things. But Paul here is writing to slaves, not to employees. If it's true for them, it's got to be true for you and me in this culture. Well, Paul makes five specific points here. And we'll just rattle through them one by one. Teach slaves to be subject to their master's. In everything. Number one, Paul urges them to have a sense of willing submission. This is very countercultural, isn't it? Um, the word says both then and now fight for your rights, don't stand for second best, don't let anyone trample on you. Paul says here teach slaves to be subject to their masters. In everything. Now Paul doesn't mean. Do everything your boss says. With no question. This isn't a reason to do illegal. Or immoral things. And there are ways of dealing with. Disputes in the workplace. Through proper and respectful channels. But what he is talking about here. Is attitude isn't he. To have. Not a grudging attitude. I'll do it because I have to do it. Paul is Urging them to have a willing sense of put yourself at the disposal of your master. Be willing. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. I, is that not radically countercultural? I, I can think of at least 10 reasons why I wouldn't want to do that for some bosses I've had in the past. And Paul says, slaves. Be subject to your masters in everything. I love the passage in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul says to slaves, Slaves, obey your masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for man. Actually, your attitude... To your boss, whatever he's like reflects your attitude to your Lord and Saviour. This has been true as we've been thinking about men and women and family issues. The whole issue of submission is so countercultural in our modern day. You, you won't be able to submit to anything unless you first of all submitted to Jesus. And that's where Pauls go here. Slaves teach them to be subject to their masters in everything. Children, submit to your parents, not because you have to, but for God's sake. Ye men, don't be bullies, but submit to Jesus and learn to be a servant-hearted leader. Why submit to Jesus first and then respect. And honour your husbands. I've said to you many times, don't wait for the other party to keep their side of the bargain before you keep your side of the bargain. Well, I'll be a good husband when my wife pulls her socks up. I'll be a good one, I'll be a good child when my mum and dad stop being stupid. That, that that isn't where the Bible begins. The Bible begins with you and Jesus and you keeping your side of the bargain, irrespective of what the other person's doing. We find it so easy to rationalise rebellion on the basis that I'm not obeying that. Don't say, I'll be a good employee when my boss learns some manners. Titus, teach slaves, Christian slaves, to be subject to their masters in everything. Tell them to choose, for Christ's sake, to be willing. Secondly, enthusiastic service. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything to try to please them. <laughs> to try to please them. Is that your attitude as you go to work? Those of you who work? Oh, please. I don't want to be the equivalent of teacher's pet. <laughs> Does that mean I'm going to take an apple to school? And <laughs> to try to please them? Do you ever stop and think, how can I today please my boss? That's, that's a radical thing to think, isn't it? How many of you think, how can I please my teachers, my parents, my minister, my husband, my wife, my friends? How easy we find it to rationalise our instinctive laziness. If my boss is horrible, I say I do, he doesn't deserve it. If my boss is really nice, I'll just say, well, he'll understand. <laughs> So whether my boss is good or bad, I'll still find a way to justify my own laziness. Sometimes you can find yourself working for a great boss. Sometimes you might even find yourself working for a Christian boss. And you think, oh well, it doesn't really matter because they know me and I don't really have to try so hard. Is this your attitude? Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything and to try to please them. The third thing that Paul says here is uh, cheerful compliance. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them. Oh, how countercultural this is. The old chestnut of back-chat. <laughs> being argumentative. Mouthing off. Just being a niggling little pain. You know, Now Paul is not saying here that all uh, employees should lie down and take every injustice that's thrown at them. But he is again talking here about attitudes, isn't he? He's urging Christian believers not to be awkward, militant, cynical, but to work hard at being peaceable and efficient. How often do we bad mouth the boss behind their backs? How often do we, when we've only got half the story, assume the worst? And talk about the boss having no idea what he's doing. Even if the boss does have no idea what he's doing, these verses still hold true, don't they? How often are we tempted to make little comments under our breath? When that jerk of a manager asks us to do something that we know is stupid, I've done it myself. I've <laughs> been disciplined for it by bosses. Um, cheerful compliance Teach slaves, slaves, to be subject to their masters, to try to please them, and not to talk back to them. There's nothing wrong with dealing with issues. Uh, in, in a good way, in a positive constructive way, but do you give the impression that every time your boss opens a mouth you want to jump down his throat or do you give the impression that you are cheerfully wanting to work hard, do you make your manager's job easy or hard that's a good way to look at it isn't it and uh, what are up to, number four is that uh, Paul says, Titus teach these slaves uh, to be subject, to please, not to talk back, and not to steal for them, from them. Well, this is, this is something else, isn't it, that we can easily rationalise. It's not really stealing, is it? This company's really wealthy. It's got way too much. And I'm quite poor. The boss earns way more than I do, and he doesn't work as hard as me. Surely I'm entitled to. And the pay here is rubbish anyway. These guys are so tight. They make you pay for your own tea and coffee. It's unbelievable. How often we rationalise dishonesty. Working slow. I didn't like what my boss has to do, so I'll do it as slow as I can. Working slow is stealing. Working short hours is stealing. Making false expense claims to gain a little bit extra because the pay's not good enough it's stealing taking company stuff home without asking is stealing. Why does Paul say this to Titus? Well, the truth is that culturally, most slaves weren't subject to their masters they weren 't trying to please them. They were talking back to them. And they were thieving from them. Paul said to them, listen, these, you Christians, you believers, how you work reflects the gospel. What is the world going to think if you work just like everyone else works? You do believe in something. You do believe in someone. Jesus is your saviour. Teach them, Titus, to be worthy of the faith that they profess. And the last one here, I've kind of used this phrase, obvious trustworthiness, because Paul says here, teach these slaves not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. That's a really provocative phrase, isn't it? He's not just saying, teach them to be fully trusted, but teach them to show, teach them to make it obvious, teach them to go to each working day and have something intentional, this is a choice, teach them to work in such a way that shows and demonstrates and proves that they're responsible and trustworthy. For these slaves, Titus, it should be blindingly obvious to their masters that their masters can trust them. If you were to interview the masters and say, "What are so is so-and-so like at work? Well, I, I don't know what's happened to them. They're absolutely unbelievable. The best servant or slave or employee that I've got. I don't know what it is that makes them tick, but everything I ask them to do, they do it. I can give them any job and they're efficient and it should be obvious. What's your timekeeping like? Your attitude, your efficiency, your productivity should reveal something about your character. You ought not to be known as awkward or disrespectful or resentful. A great example. I was trying to think in the Bible of examples of this. and um, One great example of this whole package, all these five things really is Joseph in the Old Testament isn't he? when you you think about Joseph his brothers hated him and they sold him as a slave got his multicolored coat and dipped it in some animal blood to tell the dad that he'd been killed what a dysfunctional family and Joseph's sitting in the back of some caravan on his way to Egypt as a slave he gets sold as a slave into the house of Potiphar Was it unfair? Absolutely. Did it hurt? Absolutely. I don't think any of us have been through hate like that. Should he have been there? No, not really. He should have been still at home with his dad and his brothers. Was he bitter and moody? I'm sure he had his bitter and moody days, but generally... The answer to that would be no. Just turn back with me to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. It's on page 43 verse 1, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, Potiphar an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time on he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptians because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. He didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Wow. Wow. It's a great great example, isn't it? When we think about this whole package. Joseph, willing submission, enthusiastic service, cheerful compliance, rigorous honesty, and obvious trustworthiness, he had it all in spades, didn't he? Those things were oozing out of every orifice. And his master All he has to worry about is what he's having for his tea, because he can leave it all to Joseph, because he's such a fantastic person to have around. There's an even better example than Joseph, though. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? I love the passage in John's Gospel where John describes Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And he emphasises over and over again the fact that Jesus knew who he was, knew where he'd come from, knew where he was going, he knew what was going to happen tomorrow on Good Friday. And he takes off his outer clothes and he puts a towel around his waist and he goes around washing his disciples' smelly, dirty, dusty feet. Willing submission. Submission. Enthusiastic service, cheerful compliance, rigorous honesty and purity, and obvious trustworthiness. It says about Jesus, he has done everything well. God, who is quite big. God, who it takes a lot to impress. You know, God made everything. He is big. God said, this is my son. And I'm really pleased and proud of him. What must it take to impress God like that? It takes a big man. It takes a real hero. When you hear God the Father speaking from heaven and saying, this is puffing his chest out in pride. This is Jesus, ultimately, isn't it? Why on earth would older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and now even slaves, choose to live like this? Because this is what Jesus is like. And when you live like this, you make him look great. And that's the challenge right there, isn't it? Would people look at your work and say, wow, Jesus must be brilliant if this is what believing in him makes you look like? Next time we're going to look more at verse 11 and and following. But let me, just as we close, let me just touch on this. The Christian gospel has resources within it. Security, patience, and willingness. Look at what Paul says. The grace of God that brings salvation To do what is good. Eager. Did you get that? The older versions say zealous, enthusiastic. A Christian person should be someone who is brimful of this. It's the gospel that produces this security, patience, and willingness. Your security is grounded in God. So you don't need to fight as people who are losing. Because in Christ, you've already won. Your patience is grounded in the future triumph of Christ. So you don't need to be anxious about injustice and fret over what might have been. Because one day, all of that stuff will be sorted out. And your willingness is grounded in belonging to Jesus. You don't have to strive to be accepted and appreciated because you belong to him. He loves you. This isn't a competition. He loves you. He indwells you. And because of those things, you can do things because you want to, not because you have to. The gospel has huge resources in it to stimulate these sorts of behavior traits listen your if you work your work is not God Jesus is so don't build your life around your work and worship it as if it was God build your life around Christ you can be eager to do what's good and right just because it is good and right to do it for his sake Living for Jesus will set you free from an overbearing workaholism. Workaholism, is that workaholism, (laughs) not alcoholism. Some people are workaholics. Saving Christ rather than making an idol out of your work will liberate you from being a workaholic. But on the other hand, don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that work is some sort of second best. God made work. And this whole chapter is about refocusing believers on finding glory in what is mundane. Be determined to live for Christ in what you are doing. Ask him to sanctify your work and make it honouring to him. And those of you who are younger, we've taught, going back to our original question, of work ethic's getting worse. I, the truth is, we need something to believe in, don't we? And I want to say to you younger ones who are in employment, you can believe in Jesus, and you can belong to Him, and allow that to liberate your passion and enthusiasm. In a world where the only thing that is certain is that things are uncertain, And that the speed of technology changes like the speed of light. Don't let your career be your God. But let Christ be your goal. It will be worth it now. And it will be worth it then. To his glory. Amen.